you have questions and we have answers. Due to our recent success with the top tweets on Twitter about money in the Bible podcast episode, we have decided to do an episode where we answer questions sent to us by our loyal listeners. So stay tuned, because we may just answer a question that you had in mind. All this and more on this episode of Financial Advisors Say the Darndest Things. As Christians, we were taught to be good stewards over our tithing and giving to the less fortunate. But when it came to our own personal finances and investments, we are clueless on what the Bible says. What does the Bible say about managing debt, leaving a legacy, investing, or even planning for retirement? We answer these and many other questions because we want to teach you how to be rich and righteous. If this is your first time to the show, we want to say welcome. If you're coming back for another spiritual refill, welcome back. I am A.B. Ridgeway, and this is Financial Advisors Say the Darndest Things. Welcome back. I am your host, A.B. Ridgeway, and right now, we're going to be answering some of your questions right here on the show. But first, let's start off with today's scripture. It comes from Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given unto you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, the scripture is telling us, if we don't ask, we will never get the answers we need. See me, I had this problem for years. I was afraid to ask questions because I was more concerned about how people saw me than getting the right answers that I needed to get better. With that said, I don't want you to fall into that same trap. That is why we encourage everyone listening today the rookies and the veterans to feel comfortable not knowing there is always somebody who knows something that you don't we can't know all the answers it's impossible so we're here to help you find the answers that is more important not somebody who has all the answers but somebody who is willing to go find them that is why at our firm we go into every meeting knowing that there is something that a client doesn't know or they wouldn't be there, right? So during this episode, we are highlighting some people who were not afraid to ask, and we're gonna give them some general answers to some of those questions. Now here's a little disclaimer. Without knowing more details about the person, we wouldn't be able to give specialized advice, but we can get you in the right direction. So, and for the other listeners, during this episode, I want you to ask yourself your own personal financial questions. I want you to write them down, And at the end of the show, we are going to let you know where you can send them. And you just might have a chance to have your questions answered on air as well. Does that sound exciting? I think so. Let's get this episode started with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you knowing that we don't have all the answers. Allow us to approach life with the same humility that we approach you. Having faith that those with good intentions will see us in need and help us out as children of God. That we realize that those who degrade us are not people of faith and their opinions of us have no power over us. We pray that you protect our spirits and keep them high as we address these questions. We ask all of these things in your name, amen. So let's get started. These questions are not in any particular order or rank from most important to least important or anything like that. And for the sake of time, We're going to try to just kind of hit the high points and whatever ones you need more information for, be sure to send those topics in and let us know so we can make sure that we cover them. 
in a later episode. So the first question looks like here comes from Randall from Texas. How you doing, Randall? And he asked, I've been trying to improve my credit score because I'm looking at buying a house in the next couple of months. But every time I look at it, it doesn't seem to budge. I read that the lower your score, the higher the interest rate I will have to pay. And I read one of your blogs that said just a few percentage points can cost thousands of dollars in interest. Is there any way I can help improve my credit score so I can get some better rates and avoid paying too much for my house? That's actually a great question, Randall. The short answer is yes, but the long answer is it takes time. See, your credit score is very important, as I think you know already, and I'm glad that you're taking the first steps to trying to fix it. But if you stick to the basics, you should be able to see some type of improvement. I hear people talking all the time saying, that's not fair. They decline loans for people who actually need it and the banks are corrupt. And why is it that you have to have credit to get credit? That's so stupid. And to be honest with you, it's kind of a catch 22. You're almost chastising the people who are actually loaning the money because you don't have any. Does that make sense? Because if you have the money, you wouldn't have to go to a bank. I just want to be clear here. That's why saving is so important. That's why generating your own wealth is important. That's why not spending more than what you have is important. So you don't have to depend on somebody else. But I digress. So I want you to see it from this point of view here. And I'm going to break this down. Think of your credit score as your reputation score. And anybody you ask for money can see it. Think of it as maybe tattooed on your forehead. And every time you borrow money from someone and you don't pay it back on time or at all, that score goes down. You get a brand new tattoo. So the next person you ask money from sees that lower score and they may or may not want to offer you the money. The same thing applies when you develop a reputation of asking a lot of people in a short amount of time for the same amount of money. Have you heard the old joke? If you just had a million people send you one dollar, you'll be a millionaire. Well, when it comes to credit, you asking a lot of lenders around the same time makes you look just as bad. And you develop this reputation of someone who always asks for money. And look at it from the lender's perspective. No lender wants to be number 527,823 in line when they're trying to get their money back, just in case you can't pay it back. So what can you do? Here are a few tips to help you improve your credit. One, Sounds simple, but pay your debts. Reduce the amount of people that you owe. Two, ask the lenders you have paid off to get your account off of your credit report. If you paid them in full, then it needs to come off. Special exemptions for bankruptcies and short sales that have to stay on your report for, I think it's like seven years, depending on what type of bankruptcy it is. Three, reduce the amount of credit that you use. I know everybody says you need to use credit, and that's right. So let's say that you have a $100,000 limit across all of your cards. It's a good practice to keep your credit usage below 30 to 20%. It will show you're responsible with the credit limit given and they'll be more willing and they'll be more willing to give you some more. Four, get your free credit report every year and see how much progress you are actually making. You can't fix what you don't know exist. You may actually be making progress but it's hard to see when your credit score goes from a 650 to a 652 or to a 654, right? So tracking that increase will let you know 
about how much time that you have and if you're trending in the right direction. Five, stop closing credit cards after you pay them off. I know it feels good to tell a creditor who has been bugging you for the past three years where they can put their cards, but credit doesn't just depend on your debt to income, but it also depends on credit history. So how much credit you have is important, but so is how long you have had credit. So if you had a store credit card for let's say 20 years and you pay off that $10 balance, keep it open. It helps. All of it does. All right, Randall, I hope that answers your question. Um, pretty thorough, <laughs> hopefully. Um, but thank you for submitting your questions. Anybody who's listening, if they want to submit a question, you're listening now, please send the questions to info at abrwealthmanagement.com. We'll give you that address a little later on as we keep going down the list here. All right, let's go on to our next question. It comes from Diane from Washington State. It reads, I'm in my early 50s and I'm thinking about retirement. I have a good amount saved in my checking account and most of my retirement is in my 401k. I'm still worried that I might not have enough to retire. So my question is, how much should I save for retirement? How much should you save in retirement? And I think this is one of the most requested questions that I get most of the time. And I'm glad that you asked this, Diane. This has to be one of the most requested questions that I get. You know, will I run out of money during retirement or how much should I save? They're, they're pretty much the same type of question, just asked differently. So to answer this question, it's actually pretty easy, but also pretty complicated. So let me break those two parts down. It's easy because I can mathematically give you a number to use as a baseline, but everyone's life is different. And I'll give you a few reasons why. So one, in retirement, our living expenses tend to drop. We have hopefully paid off our mortgage, kids have moved out, and any large debts that we may have accumulated are paid off. We have done a lot of our traveling, we have bought everything we may have dreamed of, and now we are focused on the next, and now we're focused on the next generation, right? Our children and our children's children. So what I'm gonna do right now, I'm gonna give you two numbers for your reference, 25X, and four. Remember those numbers, 25X and four. And if you can remember these numbers, you could potentially be 100% fulfilled in retirement. So let me break this down here. 25X represents the number of years that you will potentially live after retirement. 65 plus 25 equals 90 years old. Okay. Is that fair? It's about the, the age. There are charts, actuary charts, based on your age and lifestyle, things of that nature, they base the odds of you living to a certain age. You can check those out with your insurance carrier or even go online and have a calculator there if you really want to know what your odds are. But nobody knows. <laughs> I tell my clients, if you can tell me the day that you die, I'll put it into the financial plan. If not, let's kind of project for as long as possible. So now you have your 25X. You take your monthly expenses you multiply this by 12 to get an annual amount. So we're gonna do annually here. So let's say that your monthly expenses are $5,000. You multiply that by 12 and you're gonna get the annual amount of $60,000. Then you're gonna multiply that by 25. You're staying with me? So if you wanna make it easy, all you have to do is take your annual amount that you need per year and multiply that by 25 and that's where we're at right now, which will give you $1.5 million. Obviously, this doesn't account for inflation, which is the buzzword of the day, but for simple math, we are keeping it at 1.5 million. Okay, so 
Once you have the 1.5 million, you will withdraw 4% of this amount, which is magically $5,000 per month. And theoretically, if you are invested and get any type of positive return, it will be difficult to run out of money. Now, I'm going to add a little disclaimer here. That 4% withdrawal rate rule, the man who came up with it, I'm not even going to put his name out there because I just think it's disrespectful, but everybody started to adopt it as a rule of thumb. And people started to act like it was law. And it's not. Even the guy that created it changed it to 4.5. And I think he even went up to like 4.7. So these numbers are just kind of like a baseline. That's what makes this question so difficult is that we really can't just tell you, hey, if you save 1.75 million or 1.5 million, you're going to be okay. That's just not the case. So when we're laying out your financial plan, we're laying it out for the projections as of today. And as you evolve and as your financial situation evolves, the plan evolves with you. So sometimes a one time plan can help you start, point you in the right direction. But having a financial advisor kind of guides you through each one of those steps. So if inflation is too high or, you know, your returns are not normal or you have this large outflow from an emergency, we can help you out there. Does that make sense? All right. So let's, let's keep going here. So that was a simple answer. Are you ready for the complex answer? You sure? All right, let's dive right into it. So the complex answer is that we would calculate our stream of income, including pension plan distributions, 401k savings, traditional IRA balances, rental properties, business incomes, restricted stock units, equity bonuses. Um, we'll come up with a distribution strategy that reduces tax exposure, figure out any whole life insurance policies that you may have, annuities, and allow funds that are not necessary to remain in the account and grow. Also, we will factor in charitable giving, gifting strategies, and legacy building for transfer of assets to your beneficiaries. The thing about retirement savings is that it is not just about asset allocation, but asset location. So we will consider where's this money? What type of accounts we will withdraw these assets from? From a brokerage account? From a taxable account? Or maybe a tax deferred account? An annuity, the insurance policy, will it be inside or outside the trust? Will it be who will be the trustees and who has access to the funds in case something should happen to you before retirement or during retirement where you're unable to make decisions about your assets? Do you see how this becomes a complex question? So if you're approaching retirement or in retirement and you are totally confused about what I just said, I suggest you look into finding professional help. If you're young, starting your family, the 25 and 4 rule will be fine for you at this point. But if you have the time and willingness, I suggest you start thinking about those other elements before it gets too late. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, AB Ridgeway Wealth Management, providing Christians and people of faith financial advice from a biblical perspective. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you're struggling with your finances and looking for an advisor that shares your faith and not just your zip code, uh, be sure to schedule your free consultation at www.abrwealthmanagement.com backslash consultation. Um, if you love the podcast, uh, we are sure you'll also love our faith and finance blog that releases new posts every Tuesday and Thursday, where you can find more articles on faith, finances, and how to avoid some of those financial pitfalls so you can retire and stay retired happily ever after. Just go to our website, click on Christian Media, and you'll have access to all the resources we provide for Christian investors like you for free. 
Um, before we get back to the show, let me just say, make sure you also follow us on all of our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and YouTube. Just Google AB Ridgeway Wealth Management or check the description below and all links will be provided. Um, keep checking back because our merchandise store is coming soon. All right, welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're just answering questions. Um, we had Randall from Texas and we had Diane from Washington State. And now we're going to move on to our final question. So our final question comes from Clay from Illinois. And he writes, I have a few credit cards that I have had for a few years looking for ways to pay them down. I have a good life right now, but it would be nice to work toward cutting these credit cards up. Okay, so it looks like another credit question. So the first thing to recognize is how you got into debt. And what debt symbolizes is that you didn't have the money to buy what you have. So you had to borrow the money to live the life you are living now. That makes sense. Let me, see, let me see if I can say that one more time. What debt symbolizes is that you didn't have the money to buy what you have. So you had to borrow the money to live the life you were living. But but understand this, the life you are living is a borrowed lifestyle. It says in Proverbs chapter two, verse seven, the rich man rules over the poor and the borrower is a slave of the lender. In this case, don't think of Scrooge McDuck. I want you to think of just someone who has the money to finance the life that you want. It doesn't have to be a big bank. It could be a small department store. It could be an appliance. It could be um, like a department store. Like, do you remember rent rent a center? I don't know if you, I don't know if they still have rent a center or not. Maybe I should look it up, but rent a center or a car that you finance from the car dealership. All these are loans that make you obligated or a slave to the lender. They control your life at this point and you are the slave. Let's call it what it is. You don't think so? Think about it this way. If your mortgage company who bought your house from the bank decides to give their house to someone else, will your life change or not? If that bank decides that they don't want to lend you the money for your car, and you lose your car or cars, will that not change your life? Yes. Your lifestyle will change because that's not a lifestyle that you control. It is a borrowed lifestyle. But this adjustment that you're going to have to make is not out of volition, but out of necessity. So we are challenging you to change your life voluntarily. If you have to reset your life back to where you can afford it, and if you're going to be debt, you're going to have to go below what you can afford at this point to have the money to pay back your debt. Does that make any sense? And I know a lot of people are against the live below your means and save all your money. You know, that, that's, that's suffering. No, it's really paying back the pleasure that you are able to get without the work. You understand that? You did not suffer for the money that you have. Somebody lent it to you. And now you have to suffer to pay it back. It's just life balance. That's just how it works. For every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. So if you got pleasure without work, you're going to have to give work without pleasure. Does that make any sense? And I get it. It is very humbling. But my dad used to say that if you live below your means, 
you'll always have bunny. And there has never been any truer words spoken. I have structured my life around this principle and it has paid off. Now I'm able to live with the partnership and cooperation of my wife, the life we can enjoy without a feeling of lack. Now, before I go into the strategy portion, I was thinking about this episode while watching my son's baseball practice at the park. His coach, his name's Jared, and he was talking to the team before going out to play and he said something that was very powerful. He said, go out there and win with some dignity. And if you lose, lose with some pride. You know what? I feel the same way about paying off your debt. You may be down right now and feel like you're losing, but it is important to have some pride in who you are and your ability to accomplish your goals. I want to teach people here to keep personal finances personal. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we all have made poor financial decisions, whether we knew better or not, including me. So with that said, as we wrap up, I want to go over the snowball technique and the avalanche technique to help you with this credit card thing you're talking about. One is good for a moral boost. The other helps you pay down the debt the fastest. So let's start with the moral boost. The snowball technique is basically paying off the debt with the lowest balances. Seeing that balance at zero tends to give us some quick wins and boost morale that you are actually making progress. On a spreadsheet, it is technically slower. But hey, everyone handles finances differently. The next is the avalanche technique, where you will pay down the debt with the highest interest rate. So the first was balances, lowest balances. The second is highest interest rate. So why will we pay the highest interest rate first? Because it is the debt that is charging you the most to carry a balance per dollar. So by paying down the principal, it reduces the amount you pay over the terms of your loan. Let me give you an example. Let's say I lend you a dollar. My friend lends you a dollar. He charges you 10 cent. I charge you 25 cent. So the longer you don't pay me back, you're going to pay 15% more to me than to my friend. Does that make sense? So for every dollar on there, you're going to pay a higher interest rate, which means you're going to take a lot longer to pay back that debt. So it's going to feel like you're in debt a lot longer. Okay. So let me give you another example. Let's say you have two loans, both are $10,000 each. One loan charges you $40 per month to carry a balance, and the other loan charges you $80 per month to carry a balance. So you have one that charges you $40 a month, you have one that charges you $80 a month. Which one would you wanna pay off first? The one charging $80, right? That is how the avalanche technique works. You're gonna pay the debt that charges you the most to have it. After you pay that off, you go to the next highest and on and on and on until you finally pay off all your debts. So remember, we talked earlier about the 4% withdrawal rule. These examples are not absolutes. Depending on where you are in your life, you may want to mix it up. Maybe you pay off a few low balance cards and then attack the bigger debt. However you do it, the point is to keep doing it and stop accumulating more and more debt. But I want you to keep this in mind. I couldn't really go into much detail because we only have so much time here. Some of these topics are whole episodes. But I do want you to remember this. Albert Einstein said that compound interest should be the eighth wonder of the world. Compound interest doesn't just work on debt. It works both ways, meaning 
that if you can get into a space where you're accumulating assets at 4%, 5%, 6% growth, then that compound interest will work in your favor as well. So just like debt feels overwhelming, your growth will feel overwhelming. Does that make sense? So I, I want to take this time to just thank everybody for sending in their questions. If you're listening now and you have a question, once again, please send those in to us so we can answer it on the next show. That is it from us. I hope that you learned something. Please continue to listen for more faith and finance information because on our podcast, we believe that faith and finances don't have to be separate. As our scripture of the day said from Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. If you have a question that you would like to be featured on our podcast, do us a favor, rate the show, leave a comment below, and send your questions to info at abrwealthmanagement.com or go to our website, www.abrwealthmanagement.com. Click contact us and send us an email. Be sure to share with your friends and click that subscribe button because it helps other Christians and people of faith find the show just like someone clicked so you can find this one. I hope that you've been blessed. As always, this episode was created by A.B. Ridgeway, owner of A.B. Ridgeway Wealth Management, a virtual and in-person fee-only advisor that believes that financial advice should have God in it. If you need help figuring out your finances, feel free to reach out to us at 337-414-3686 or visit our website at www.abrwealthmanagement.com and schedule a free consultation. New episodes are available every Friday, so be sure to subscribe. You can also listen to our podcast on your favorite platforms, Amazon Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and more. Or simply visit our website and join our family. I am A.B. Ridgeway, and I'll see you on the other side of your blessing. Elijah Ridgeway is an investment advisor representative and owner of A.B. Ridgeway Wealth Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor which produces a podcast show and makes it available on his website and through other distribution channels. Elijah Ridgeway and any guests on the podcast are providing their own views and opinion are not necessarily the views and opinions of A.B. Ridgeway Wealth Management. Nothing on the podcast should be construed as solicitation or offer or recommendation to buy or sell any specific security. Investment advisory services are only provided to investors who become A.B. Ridgeway Wealth Management clients pursuant to a written investment management agreement. Clients of A.B. Ridgeway Wealth Management may hold positions and securities discussed in the podcast. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk and may lose money. Financial advisors say the Darnestine podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for any investment decisions. Instead, please consult a financial advisor, accountant, attorney, and or conduct your own due diligence.